Artemis is not an affirmative force. It simply reoccupies the space vacated by the light. This is the Hamilton Quarter on American Family Radio. It should be uncomfortable for a believer to live as a hypocrite. Delivering people out of the bondage of mainstream media. And the philosophies of this world. God has called you and me to be his ambassadors. Even in this dark moment. Let's not miss our moment. And now, the Hamilton Corner. Good evening. Welcome to the Hamilton Corner here on American Family Radio. I'm your host, Abraham Hamilton III. You definitely want to buckle your seatbelts for today's program. Man, we've had all kinds of technical difficulties behind the scenes, but praise God we were able to get going with today's edition of the program. And I kind of have a feeling there's a reason behind all of this technical difficulty. But uh, by God's grace, I think we were able to press through and deliver today's program to you. Many of you are right now at this very moment making your transition from your part-time jobs where you generate an income to your full-time jobs where you cultivate an outcome. And we uh, are endeavoring on a daily basis to aid you in your outcome-cultivating enterprise uh, by continuously pointing you to the truth of God's Word and, and aiding, hopefully, aiding you in applying God's word to the issues of the day as they present themselves. As you make that transition, make that transition from your part-time job to your full-time job, let me remind you that the first ministerial context that every single believer is called to serve in, it is within the context of our immediate families. I know we all have different family dynamics. We all have different uh, stages in our lives. Uh, but the reality is that we all are a part of at some level at some level, a part of, uh, of a family. And it is God's desire that we would serve him and serve him uh, valorously beginning in our homes. The first institution that God created was the family. The foundational unit of the family is marriage. God did that and he recorded it that way for us in his word. Uh, yes, to record anthropological history, but also to convey a transcendent theological truth to convey the primacy that he places on family in an effort to instruct us in understanding the primacy that we should embrace concerning family. It is not the sole context, the exclusive context that we should be engaged in, but it is nevertheless a primary context that God has given us. And as with all things that are good, as with all good things, uh, it has the potential to be turned into an idol, one of the fundamental uh, ways to avoid falling into the ditch of idolatry is making sure we maintain the why behind the what. We, want, we have to make sure that our commitment to our family is driven by the will of God and the word of God and the passion that we have for him, not just the humanistic notion that we have ascribed to concerning our families, but to make sure that we are doing so as we offer our lifestyle of worship in obedience to our Lord and serving the family. I say this all the time. Parenting can become an idol. Uh, financial stewardship can become an idol. Preaching can become an idol. Church attendance can become an idol. Eating can become an idol. Having fun can become an idol if we're not careful and we allow the what to be severed from the why. We want to make sure that our why is always intact 
and that we understand that the why must be connected to that in everything we do, we do heartily as unto the Lord. Our commitment to the Lord is the very thing that drives us to serve our families well. We have not separated our commitment uh, to the Lord from our, we have not separated our worship of our Lord from our commitment to our families. It is because we love worship and are committed to our Lord that we serve our families in the way that we do. And we must keep that perspective intact. Well, I have to tell you guys that I, I'm excited. I, I can almost burst at this very moment uh, because we have a guest on today's program. And I'm just so thankful that the Lord has, has sovereignly aligned uh, and ordained for us to be able to have my guest on today, the very day after Mr. J. Robinette issued his um, <laughs> his sultan delusion of an executive action. I mean, this is uh, it's amazing. I, I went to I went to bed last night, and my wife and I were talking about this. Uh, it, it is amazing how quickly um, this man has indicated his utter disdain for the Constitution. You know, we shouldn't be surprised. And I'm going to get to the scripture. Don't worry about that. But I, I just, I mean, this is just burning on my um, on my heart. We shouldn't be surprised. We witnessed not too long ago uh, Mr. J. Robinette B. announce his awareness that an action that he wanted to implement was unconstitutional, was illegal. Remember, he told us that concerning the, the, the eviction moratorium. The people he sought counsel from, the attorneys that advised him, told him that it was illegal told him that but he did it anyway he said he was doing it because by the time the court slapped him down for this unconstitutional action he would have already gotten a bunch of the american citizenry uh hooked on the public dole in the way of uh, more financial assistance federal financial assistance and it would not surprise me if some of the same uh, ideation ha ha would motivate this current action concerning these uh, vaccine shot mandates. I mean, because really, they're they're shots. You know, it the the CDC's redefinition of vaccination should give you an indication that they even understand that these are injections or shots. Um, it, it it's amazing. But anyway, I don't want to get too far along those lines because I need my own thinking straightened out by the Word of God. So we're going to begin the program in Proverbs chapter eighteen, Proverbs chapter eighteen, verses thirteen through seventeen. Uh, and as I've stated numerous times before, Proverbs is wisdom literature. That is the genre of literature that it is, um, that you can plumb the depths of individual verses of Scripture there. This is one of the only sources uh, or locations in Scripture where you can do that, or the genres in Scripture, wisdom literature. You should not apply that hermeneutical tact to narrative or to poetry or to uh, prophecy, biblical prophecy or apocalyptic literature. Uh, that should only be applied to wisdom literature. But in Proverbs chapter 18, Verses 13 through 17, this is what the word of God says. <clears throat> he who gives an answer, man, man, man. He who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. The spirit of a man can endure sickness, but as for a broken spirit, who can bear it? The mind of the prudent acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. A man's gifts make room, makes room for him and brings him before great men. The first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. 
Man, oh man, oh man. Oh, Lord, I thank you for your word and I thank you for your wisdom. How desperately, how desperately do we need this wisdom applied to our modern cultural context? First in verse 13, he who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. I, I can tell you very plainly that we are living in a, a culture that is completely void of of any knowledge whatsoever of this particular scripture because we have people who make it a daily practice and this is not limited to the unbelievers we have people who profess to be members of the family of God who according to this scripture they should be shamed they should be ashamed of their consistent yet passionate display of folly how often do you hear people giving answers rattling off information saying things before they've actually heard anything factual about the matter. Empty-headed opinion-making, having no information, having no facts, having no insight, yet rendering opinions. According to this scripture, for us to engage in that kind of, I would say, reckless social conduct, the Bible says it is folly and Shame, folly and shame. Verse 15 says the mind of the prudent acquires knowledge. When you when you um, apply this scripture along with scriptures like Second Peter, chapter one, uh, verses one through nine, where the scripture begins there uh, in verse three. In fact, it says that the Lord has given us everything uh, that pertains to life and godliness through his great and precious promises. Then it goes on to say that we are to add to our faith or supplement our faith with knowledge. Christ followers should be the most um, fact-driven people that exist. <laughs> Notice I didn't say exclusively fact-driven. It We should be the ones that should be the most consistently studious, voraciously studious in studying, studying an issue before we arrive at a conclusion. The mind of the prudent acquires knowledge and the ear of the wise. Isn't that amazing? The ear of the wise, the mind of the prudent and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. That very phrasing indicates that uh, the, the, the one who lives in reverential fear of God is driven more by the ear than by the mouth. The ear of the wise, we're seeking to understand, seeking to, to know, seeking to comprehend. And it is because of that that we're driven to do the necessary research before we come to a conclusion. Then verse six, verse 17, one of my favorite verses in Scripture. It literally describes the trial process, and I'll explain what I mean. The first to plead his case seems right. The person who states his opinion first, the, first, the person who expresses their position first, they seem right until. Another comes and examines him in any uh, trial litigation, whether it be in the civil context or in the criminal context, the moving party, the movement has what's called the burden of proof. The movement has to bear the burden of initial showing, if you will. In a civil context, it is the plaintiff. In a criminal context, it is the prosecution or the state. The moving party has the burden of of presenting its case first. It is called at trial, 
the case in chief. When juries often hear the case in chief as presented in a civil or criminal context, it often sounds right. Those of you who may have watched various trials, you heard the initial moving parties presentation of their case, and, and you often thought, huh, that makes a lot of sense. Until another comes and examines him. That is why when you have witnesses that are presented by the case in chief proponents, the moving party, the opposing party gets the opportunity to what? Cross-examine those witnesses. They get to question those witnesses in an effort to see if the veracity of their presentation can withhold scrutiny. When the cross-examination is often applied, sometimes, not always, sometimes the case in chief falls apart. The one who pleads this case first seems right until another comes and examines him. We are living in a time mm -hmm, mm -hmm, where we have lots of people giving answers before hearing. We have lots of people who hear just the slightest scintilla of the initial pleader or the case in chief proponents, or as verse 17 says, the first to plead their case and then they run off and conclude as if the matter has been settled. I mean, we witnessed this, as I shared with you all last week, that it just so happened that uh, as the popular podcaster and, and UFC commentator Joe Rogan uh, explained that it was taken, uh, as he said, the kitchen sink to address his positive COVID test, which included ivermectin, almost immediately Rolling Stone comes out with their case saying that at a hospital in Oklahoma, you had their emergency room being overrun by people overdosing on ivermectin. Only to find out soon thereafter, based on the very hospital that the Rolling Stone article highlighted, the hospital itself said, mm -mm, that's not true. They issued their very own statement indicating that the entire story was false. But that didn't stop regressives the country over from running with the Rolling Stone article. That's a perfect example of the first to plead their case seems right until another comes and examines him. Today, Lord willing, we planned to we plan to open up a cross-examination because our culture is reeling. Mr. J. Robinette B. just announced a mandate. And according to my next guest, the mandate announcement is based upon a faulty assumption. What is that faulty assumption? Is there a way forward for us? For us, Do we have the ability to hear before arriving at a conclusion? These are things I want you to keep in mind and consider as we move forward with the program. Dan Celia of Financial Issues. Would you make one of the most important phone calls that you can make as far as your economic, your financial stewardship? I believe that permanent income is incredibly important to us, especially when you're retired. Listen, one thing we know for certain, the consumption of goods and your cost are never going to change. Make sure that you protect your income. Social Security, you will likely have maybe a pension. Add to permanent income with a charitable gift annuity and do the Lord's work. There's no better organization to do it with than the AFA Foundation and no better time in our economy 
than right now. Call and speak with a representative of the AFA Foundation at 800-326-4543, extension 345. I'm Peter Rosenberger, and this is your Caregiver Minute. One of the toughest challenges for caregivers is to detach from the poor conduct of our loved one. Chronic pain, dementia, pharmaceuticals, fear, those things can cause all types of behavior issues. Maybe they're just having a bad day. Regardless of what's going on with them, we don't have to take it personally, even if it sounds personal. As long as our self-worth is tied to the opinion of someone else, we're never going to be a healthy person. You are an extraordinary individual created in the image of God, and amazingly, you show up to care for an impaired loved one. They may pop off at you, say hurtful things, and berate you, but remember, they are impaired on some level. Why would you attach your value to a sickness? Listen, they're not doing it to you. They're just doing it. Let it go on past you and go about your day feeling confident you're doing the best you can with what you have and what you know. This has been your Caregiver Minute with Peter Rosenberger, brought to you by Standing with Hope, a ministry for the wounded and those who care for them. There's more information at standingwithhope.com. Hi, my name's Eric. And I'm Kendra. And we have been married a little over two years now. Honestly, I think the, the most challenging part of our marriage so far, we're right in the middle of it. We're trying to have kids right now. I have a spinal cord injury, so that makes things a little more difficult. And um, I just am, am dealing with some issues with infertility. The difficulty is on my end. But it's our infertility. But it is our, yeah. Because we're right. one now. <laughs> and I, I think what's really helped us through this is keeping Jesus at the center mm-hmm. of it all and knowing that anything that causes you to lean and depend on Jesus more is actually a blessing. Yes. It's heartening to, to know that I have someone who's, she's on my team. Tune into By Design as we explore God's true purpose and design for marriage. Just visit the podcast page at AFR.net. Shining light into the darkness. This is the Hamilton Corner on American Family Radio. My PhD in cellular and molecular biology right here in the state of Michigan from University of Michigan Medical School. So I'm very well versed in the science of both these mRNA gene therapy, vaccines, this kind of technology, as well as what a vaccine is designed to do in the body, what it can do, what it can't do, and the fact that this is extremely complex science that has been oversimplified in the media to basically take away our freedom of choice. What I want to address today in this limited time is the fact that vaccine requirements and mandates are based on the faulty assumption that the vaccines in question prevent transmission of the pathogen. Does the vaccine for DTaP prevent transmission? No. Does the vaccine for flu prevent transmission? No. Do the vaccines for COVID prevent transmission? No. Welcome back to the Hamilton Corner. Abraham Hamilton III here, and the voice you just heard is the voice of my esteemed guest that I have to tell you uh, that I am over the moon excited to have her on the program. My guest is none other than Dr. Christina Parks. She has a Ph.D., in cellular and molecular biology from the University of Michigan. And what you heard just now was an excerpt of testimony she provided before the Michigan State Legislature pertaining to House Bill 4471, which was a bill that was promulgated to prevent discrimination against people based upon their vaccine status. 
Dr. Parks, thank you so much for joining me today on the program. Yes, I'm uh, so pleased to be here. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you very well. I can hear you very well. You know, it hung up on me just right before (laughs) this. So, (laughs) as you were saying, uh, someone has a vested interest in um, keeping this information. And so we call upon God's angels to come and and be with us. Amen. And most importantly, and I was going to get to this, but I'm just going to say it now. In light of what you said, that in my, my research and studying about Dr. Parks, uh, I learned that you are also our sister in the Lord. You teach at homeschool co-ops. I don't know if you know this, but I'm a homeschool dad. My wife and I have five children. So I really feel right at home uh, having this conversation with you, particularly at this moment in our nation's history. Amen. All right. Yes. So I actually tweeted out um, a YouTube recording of your entire testimony because I was just amazed at your eloquence, at your your. Um, expertise and your boldness in presenting uh, the truth before the Michigan State Legislature. And I said at that very moment, I've got to do whatever I can to get you on to the Hamilton Corner. So I want to just start right there where we began. As you know, that was some of your introductory remarks uh, before the Michigan State Legislature. And and you concluded that short phrasing uh, by describing that much of these these discussions about requirements, vaccine requirements and even mandates are based upon a faulty assumption. What is that faulty assumption, and what do people really need to know about this, as you described in this mRNA technologies as described and oversimplified in popular discourse as a vaccine? Well, the most important thing is these vaccines do not prevent transmission, and they were never designed to do that. Um, They were designed Mm. with the hope that they would reduce symptoms. And even Mm. in the clinical trials, they didn't ever evaluate their ability to to prevent transmission. And they've been working on a vaccine for SARS since the original SARS in like 2002. And um, and so um, this isn't like a new thing, like, you know, it's maybe new to humans. But, you know, we had the first SARS in China. Now we have SARS-CoV-2. But the thing that they skipped, where they could have found out if it prevents transmission, would be in the animal trials. And um, they they skipped those, and they didn't do those. And they didn't even evaluate in any way, shape, or form whether this prevented transmission. The assumption, based on what we know about vaccinology and previous vaccines, which I kind of referenced in my talk, is that Mm -hmm. this kind of vaccine wouldn't. And I want to be very clear about this. So when you inject a regular vaccine. This is not a regular vaccine. But um, you form antibodies, and with this you're going to form antibodies as well. You form two kinds. You form serum IgG and serum IgA. Those stay in your blood and tissue. They were designed to neutralize virus in the lungs, right? Um, In order to prevent transmission, you have to stimulate the production of a particular kind of antibody called mucosal IgA. So these are antibodies in your mucous membrane, in your nose and throat. These vaccines aren't designed to do that, and they don't do that um, to a significant degree. There may be some very minor amount of doing that. Um, and so because they don't, in fact, some people are actually, there's a intranasal vaccine under development that possibly might prevent transmission, but these don't. They don't stop the virus from replicating in your nose or in your throat. So even though they might reduce symptoms in the lungs, they're not preventing transmission. And, I mean, look, at that's what we've seen, um, you know, everywhere, that the vaccinated are still getting this and they're still spreading it. Yes, and, and we even, and, and I talked about this on the program just yesterday, 
uh, that we even see the CDC uh, changing its definition of vaccination in light of what I think they know uh, about what you just described, uh, because prior to 2015, it described vaccinations as preventing certain diseases. Uh, then subsequent to 2015, they started talking about immunization. And, and now they have redefined it yet again. They're saying protecting against that. That is a consistent downgrade that seems, in my uh, my view, to cut against even the basis of the applications for emergency use authorization, because their emergency use, au- use authorization was secured on the basis that what they were producing, the, by the way, of, of a vaccine would prevent and pre- <laughs> prevent uh, I- infection from the disease and transmission of it. I don't think most Americans are aware that uh, preventing transmissibility was never on the table. I don't think most people are aware of that. I think it is very concerning to me, the misrepresentation. And we've seen this in the past. Um, as I said, we saw this with DTaP, which, again, mm. it protects from severe disease of whooping cough. And with infants six months and younger, that can be fatal. And so it's not mm. that there's no worth to it. But they misrepresent it and say everybody needs to be vaccinated to prevent transmission. But all vaccination does is it neutralizes the toxin, which makes that horrible, horrible cough that can be so terrible in infants. But it doesn't prevent. Um, in fact, if you have, uh, you know, toddlers, they can go to, to daycare and they can pick it up even if they're fully vaccinated and bring that dangerous bacteria back, give it to their infant brother or sister who hasn't had time to receive their full vaccination schedule and they can get severe whooping cough. They basically become asymptomatic carriers. And so Mm. this misrepresentation has been, you know, ongoing with the CDC. And what they do to prevent them having to say it a lot of times is they get celebrities to say, I'm doing this to protect my neighbors because that celebrity can't be expected to be a scientific authority. If they said it Mm. incorrectly, then we could probably actually take them to court for it. So they have someone with no scientific background say it. And in fact, both um, um, the head of the CDC, um, Dr. Walensky, and Tony Fauci Mm -hmm. have both admitted that with the Delta variant, the vaccines aren't able to prevent transmission. What they're not telling Mm -hmm. you is they didn't even prevent transmission before. They're acting like something changed, and now they're not preventing transmission, but they didn't really prevent, they were never designed to prevent transmission. That's amazing. I, I wrote that down in my notes from your testimony where you cited uh, Dr. Walensky admitting that that these in the, these vaccinations, I call them shots, frankly, have no ability to prevent infection by or transmission of the Delta variant. Would you mind explaining uh, to to our listeners here um, the the difference between the initial variant and you made obvious about that in your legislative testimony and this Delta variant? Well, first, I want to say that there are millions, there's like lots and lots of variants, right? And that's usually not a problem. Like viruses mutate, and, but generally they're about the same. But um, what happens when you have a vaccination in the presence, when it, doesn't, when it doesn't actually prevent transmission of the virus, you get escape mutants. That means mutants that the, the virus, that the vaccine isn't working against. And so the vaccination actually selects for mutants that um, either escape it or that somehow vaccination is actually helping. And here's what I mean by helping. So sometimes uh, the spike protein actually binds to the ACE2 receptor, and um, basically the antibodies in your body are actually supposed to neutralize and destroy that spike protein. 
But sometimes the antibodies accidentally help the spike protein, help the virus into the cell. And so there's some new modeling data that strongly suggests that mutations within the delta um, are such that this, ver this uh, variant could actually be helping the virus into the cell. We've seen this in other viruses. We saw this with, R um, and we can see this with RSV. They actually tried to develop a vaccine for RSV, respiratory syncytial virus, which is very dangerous for children. And when they did that, they vaccinated the children, and the children who had been vaccinated when they were um, finally got, you know, got the virus, they actually got way, way sicker because the antibodies that were supposed to destroy the virus actually helped it into the cell. So we've seen this with a few different types of um, with viruses. And so this is not unique to, to SARS-CoV-2, but most lay people have never heard about it. And so the Delta variant may be actually... Um, doing something called antibody-dependent enhancement, actually helping the virus to infect the cells and making infection worse. Hmm. Now, with, is that the case regardless of the status of people receiving the injections, or is that something that is bolstered potentially even by having some of some of these, whether it's Pfizer, Moderna, or Johnson & Johnson, some of, some of these shots? Is, is that process bolstered could potentially be bolstered by that so that would generally be specific to those who are vaccinated so it's the antibodies that you generate when you've been vaccinated that are the ones that are helping the virus um, into the cell now some people there might be other people that you know by chance have some of those same antibodies but it's not as likely to um, be as problematic however because I um, because vaccination is putting selective pressure, because the virus is still replicating, even in the vaccinated, it's selecting for weird mutations that can get around the vaccine. And some of those weird mutations may actually be um, more severe than the current version. So I want to explain why viruses usually get weaker and weaker and weaker. And one of the reasons is if you get a virus and it's really strong, you don't go out, you don't go to work, you stay home because you're really, really sick. And so only the people who have a mutated version of the virus that's a little bit weaker actually don't feel that sick and they go out. And so for this reason, naturally, we sort of select for weaker and weaker variants of the virus because people who aren't that ill go out and they spread weaker variants. And that sort of it's almost like its own vaccine. The weaker variants that are spreading, everybody gets it. And so they're immune to the more severe variants. Um, mm -hmm. That's why viruses tend to get weaker and weaker. But when you put the vaccine in there, it complicates everything because the virus is still replicating. It can possibly make escape mutants that escape the vaccine, mutants that are potentially more severe. And then those are actually um, going to affect regular people, too, who um, have not developed immunity yet. Hmm. Why aren't we having more conversations about this? Because there are lots of people and, and heard, like myself, when the initial conversations about vaccinations occurred, the public uh, marketing message, if you will, was that if you get vaccinated, you won't get the virus. Mr. Biden said that. Uh, Dr. Frauci said that. Lots of other people said that. And, and now, as you said, people are acting like, oh, there's something has changed that, oh, yeah, even people who've been vaccinated uh, are actually contracting the virus. Oh, yeah, and you can still transmit it even post-vaccination. But what you're describing is that the reality or potential exists uh, that injecting the vaccines could help proliferate stronger variants uh, into society working against uh, what you described as the natural process of weaker and weaker violent, weaker and weaker vi 
uh, variants proliferating in society, that the, the vaccine actually can result in the proliferation of stronger vi variants. Am I misunderstanding that? I'm not the only scientist who's come forward. In fact, there are a lot of scientists who've been yelling this from the rooftops, and we've been so heavily censored, it's been shocking, actually just absolutely shocking. And these are people who are, are very preeminent in, in their field. And so um, it's, uh, the censorship is, is very, very real. And the thing is, like, you know, there's, you, you can say that the CDC and Fauci and everybody else misrepresented, but there's another way to say that. They lied. And they lied intentionally. Mm. And we knew the mm. science before. This is not new. Those of us who were concerned about it were concerned about it last year. Um, some of us, I was following the, the uh, virus, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, in China before it even came to America. And so we started pulling the science, and many, and, you know, during the lockdown, many scientists had not a lot of time. And so we really started doing a deep dive. And honestly, I spent a lot of last year absolutely shocked sick at um, the lies that were being told, the censorship, the misrepresentation, and the cover-up, things like, hydroxychloroquine, them just basically lying, bold-faced lying about the science. Dr. Parks, this is, <laughs> this is, this is, this is mind-blowing, um, you know, and, and there is a tendency. I, I, I'm known not to mince words, uh, but I don't want to, you know, be overly uh, hyperbolic either, but when you factor in or consider what you just said, that you have people that are intentionally lying about the science it it would force you and i don't i don't want you to offer an opinion you're not a comfortable offering and things of that nature but i do want to ask the question what what could be motivating this um if you have something as clear as you said you're not even the only uh scientist to say this many others have said it but they are not the prominent voices on this issue because the media is aiding the lie to 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 expand by keeping uh the people from hearing this information why why? What is the motivating factor? What is driving these people to lie about this? About this? Well, science? as I'm sure you're aware, there's lots of conspiracy theorists, and maybe they're not so far away from the truth. I don't know the answer to that. All I can do is, is look at the science. But what I do know is that there, um, the emergency use authorization for the vaccine was dependent on there being no viable um, treatment. And so mm. it makes sense that the treatments would be censored um, because they wanted the emergency use authorization pharma has become so incredibly powerful and um mm. and they own a lot of our media because they own all the ads on all of our major uh, television networks and so they have a lot of force to and and they have collaborations with a lot of the the big tech and let me so jump in right there we kind of got because... this marriage between pharma and big tech and media that basically is is bigger than any country. That's what's so scary. It's like they seem to have more power than anybody on earth. In his image, delighting in God's plan for gender and sexuality is changing hearts and lives. It speaks directly to the power and the grace of God. Gives me hope for people that I know that are struggling. The whole idea of in his image has moved <laughs> me. We actually had one gentleman contact us and he said that this film changed his mind about this issue. We had a pastor reach out to us and he said that he'd been struggling with hatred in his heart towards people in the LGBTQ community. And this film helped him to realize he needed to have compassion and show people the love of Christ. 
We also had this same-sex attracted couple contact us, and they said after seeing the film, they wanted to live obedient lives for Christ no matter what, and they said, please pray for us. We know this is going to be hard. We've even had people come to faith in Jesus through In His Image. To find out more, visit inhisimage.movie. Understanding God. This is David Wheaton, host of The Christian Worldview. Whether it's the authoritarian and unscientific mandates over COVID, the sad decline of U.S. political and military leadership as seen in Afghanistan, and the utter rejection of God's design for sexuality and gender, the world feels like it's spinning out of control. So what's a Christian to do? Focus on the most important thing, God and his perfect and powerful attributes. He is truth, he is in control, he offers hope. Jesus prayed, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Hear an interview with Dr. Stephen Lawson and preview his book, Show Me Your Glory, on the attributes of God at thechristianworldview.org. And then tune in this weekend for another topic that will sharpen your worldview. Listen to The Christian Worldview with David Wheaton, Saturday mornings at 8 Central on American Family Radio. Hello, Americans. I'm Todd Starnes. Stand by for news and commentary next. Uh, my goal as a teacher is to impart knowledge and then be able then for them to take it and turn it into wisdom. As we teach, I think, okay, five years down the road, how will the material that I am teaching them really affect their lives and their careers? Hi, Todd Starnes here. Truett offers biblically-centered degree programs. Check out truett.edu slash Starnes. The University of Tennessee Knoxville is hosting a series of meetings for white people to examine the crime of their skin color. The classes are part of the Master's in Social Work program at the university. The university says minority students should be provided a safe and supportive place, hence the segregation. According to emails obtained by Young America's Foundation, the White Accountability Group dealt with white skin privilege, holding Caucasian students accountable for engaging in whiteness. The Minority Affinity Group affirmed that people of color can be magical in a predominantly white university. In one role-play scenario, students actually discussed whether it was okay to call a pro-Trump classmate a racist. Well, this is what critical race theory looks like. The notion white students should be ashamed of the color of their skin. We're all created in God's image, but the University of Tennessee Knoxville seems to think God made a mistake. I'm Todd Stearns. The Hamilton Quarter Podcast and one-minute commentaries are available at AFR.net. Back to the Hamilton Quarter on American Family Radio. Every second I can with Dr. Parks while we have her. Uh, before we went to the break, you dropped a bomb that I don't think many people are aware of. You said that in order for the emergency use authorization uh, to go forward, one of the bases for its expediting was that there were no alternative treatments available. Would you mind just just weighing into that a little bit more and, and just reiterating that? Because that is a huge point a huge point that I think a lot, not many people are aware of. Right. Well, many people aren't aware. Like many people heard that hydroxychloroquine, they heard the media say that um, 
you know, like, it, well, it just doesn't work. And so they, they thought, well, you can trust the media, and, and, and they believed him. What they didn't realize is that for an emergency use authorization for a vaccine, because it hasn't passed all the stringent tests and everything, right, that basically there can be no effective, if, if there are any effective treatments, you can't get an emergency use authorization for a vaccine because they want to keep people safe, right? That's how the law is structured. Mm. And so... Um, it was shocking to me that one of the top leading infectious disease experts in the world, Didier Raoult, showed back in March and April of the year that COVID started that basically um, hydroxychloroquine obliterated viral infections, the viral infection of SARS-CoV-2. In patients, he showed this. And so, and then he treated a thousand patients successfully with it. And so this is, um, and when I looked him up, he had worked with hydroxychloroquine for like a decade or more. And so this is someone who really knew what he was talking about. And he was poo-pooed as if he was nobody. And it was all shut down. Then, to make matters worse, in one of the top medical journals, I can't remember exactly which one, they had this study that was supposed to have hundreds of thousands of people in it. And then it turned out it was completely fraudulent. Like, completely fraudulent. The whole data set was fraudulent. And they used that study to debunk it in the media. And then within, like, a few weeks, that study was retracted, not because of some minor deficiency, but because the data were completely fraudulent. They never existed. Mm. And so mm. how does that happen? And so you have to believe that um, Big Pharma, someone is playing a, a very big role to get their agenda, in this case, possibly the vaccine, um, to market, to either make money, whatever their goal is, um, I can't say, but basically they want everybody taking this vaccine. And pharma has exerted every muscle that they have to, to do that, and I think controlling the media is a big way. But again, the big tech censorship, anyone that posted my videos had their account banned for 30 days at, at the very least. So I didn't post mm. any of my own videos on Facebook. <laughs> That's amazing. That, that That's amazing. <laughs> and, it, and it makes complete sense because, as you just said, if there are alternative treatments available, then there is no need for an emergency use authorization. And then we have subsequent studies. I talked yesterday about um, how in India, in the Uttar Pradesh uh, province or, or state in India, uh, that they had widespread usage of ivermectin in contrast to that with the nearby state of Kerala where they did not use it and they had clearly divergent results. And this isn't something that just happened like yesterday. We have over a year and a half's worth of data uh, that, that, that indicated the differences in performance there. But we don't hear nearly a peep of that in American media to show the hopefulness of these types of treatment. But we have them attempting to conflate the, uh, the, use, <laughs> the drug that won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2015 with a derivative or, or that's used uh, to service animals and treat it as if it's not nothing other than a horse dewormer. And it's just it, that it's that kind of egregious communication that contributes to people uh, thinking and distrusting our media, distrusting our government, because this information is readily available, but they are concealing it from us with great intentionality. Exactly. If you go to C19.Ivermectin.com, I think, or C19HCQ.com, there is a database that has real-life, real-time links to every study that's been done on both of those medications with regard to COVID. And there are over 250 studies 
um, you know, dozens of clinical trials on um, hydroxychloroquine and like 63 studies on ivermectin, one that was done in medical workers where they had almost 800 medical workers that were exposed to COVID daily and they took prophylactic ivermectin and zero, zero of them got ill. Where in the control group, which was about, it was over 400 people, about half of them, more than half of them got ill that weren't taking prophylactic ivermectin. So, you know, they found that it's 86% effective at preventing transmission. Hydroxychloroquine is also somewhat effective at pre preventing transmission. If we had used these medications early, we would have shut this down. You know, I had a neighbor that, that died of this. Many of us have people who have died of this or people who have gotten very yeah. ill, and it's very scary. And so it's a hyperinflammatory yeah. disease. I'm not going to minimize it, but they never needed to have gotten it in the first place. If we had used this mm -hmm. widespread, we would have shut this down. So. To me, I don't know what the agenda is, but it's clear that someone has an agenda of having this illness continue in our population. And until people know that, they're going to use every means at their disposal to keep this going. I don't know exactly what their reasoning is why they want this to go. There's lots of conspiracies, but I know that it's clear that um, based on them shutting down effective treatments that have mountain, these are, these are some of the safest, most effective drugs um, they are both of them that are kind of miracle drugs. They're broadly antiviral, broadly antibacterial. Mm -hmm. They're antifungal. They even have properties that make them anti-cancer. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's why they don't want you to know about them. But there's decades of science behind this and decades of safe use behind both of these medications in humans. That's amazing. That's amazing. I have basically two more areas I want to hit. Uh, you mentioned in your testimony before the Michigan legislature um, a study that at that time when you were testifying that had been recently uh, publicized that chronicled what you shared here in this program and before the Michigan State Legislature uh, that chronicled uh, the intensification of symptomology from COVID-19 in those who have taken the vaccine injection. Would you just share a little bit uh, with the audience of, uh, basically what the findings from that study were? And then I have one other area I want to go after that. Well, I think that's what we talked about earlier about the Delta variant. And so that one yes, was, yes, yes. it was a modeling um, thing that showed basically that um, the Delta variant, mutants in the Delta variant can um, actually help the virus get into cells so that you're going to be sicker. And we actually have seen some data that are consistent with this in real life. One data showed that um, people who had gotten the vaccine had 251 times the viral load um, of Delta versus those who had been vaccinated and then got alpha. So basically, you know, it may have been there, we weren't seeing a huge amount of, of virus with, with the old variant, but now we're seeing way, way, way higher viral loads in the vaccinated. And so that would indicate that this antibody-dependent enhancement may actually be happening. Now, in, in any kind of science, you've got to, you know, have a lot of data, you know what I mean? It takes time, but right yeah. now we don't have time in the sense that we can't continue with policies based on that aren't based on science um, and, and put people at risk. We have to say, hey, this may be happening, and let's use something that actually is effective. Hmm. And people who are in the know, so to speak, PhDs and others, have this information. You made a, a, an astounding remark to those who may not have been aware of it during your uh, legislative testimony where you described the largest group of vaccine hesitant people in the country would you share with with our audience here a little bit about who those people are who's the most vaccine hesitant 
uh, in our right. country. A recent study, and you know, I can send you links to many of these resources, um, just showed that PhDs are the most vaccine-hesitant group. And as a medical researcher, I can tell you why that is. And, you know, just from the colleagues that I spoke with, we know that the body is really, really complex. And when I, uh, you know, was working at um, University of Michigan, we were actually identifying the receptors that the immune system uses to signal. So we didn't even know all of them. I'm not sure we know all of them now. We're just beginning to figure out the signaling of how the immune system works. And so we knew then, and most um, researchers should know, there's so much we don't know. There used to be signs posted on people's doors. Um, if we knew what we were doing, they wouldn't call it research, <laughs> right? Mm. Which is not to say we haven't found many meaningful things in science, but that there's the humility before God in knowing what you don't know. And, mm. um, and I think that that's important, and many scientists really understand that there's so much that we don't know that um, you're playing games to, um, especially like if you think about an illness like chickenpox, it was very, very mild. I was very concerned when they started vaccinating for chickenpox because every time you inject something in and have your immune system respond to it, you're not seeing, that's like, not like a natural exposure. You're injecting something into your body. Um, mm. That there's, there's going to be changes in your immune system that you don't fully understand and we may never fully understand. And for something that's really mild, it's just not worth it. Now, you could argue that SARS is, is, isn't really mild, but if we had a vaccine that, one, wasn't extremely dangerous form of gene therapy or that actually prevented transmission, then the cost-benefit um, might be different. But um, real scientists are always going to weigh that cost-benefit, and part of the cost is always going to be what we don't know. Um, mm -hmm. There's always something we don't know, and you should always err on the side of, of humility and caution especially if you had something like a medication, a treatment that you're, you're not injecting that's not changing your immune system. It's a treatment that can help you get through the virus, establish natural immunity that you'll likely have for years, if not a lifetime, and it didn't, didn't change your immune system. Hmm. Many of us have heard the description of this, you know, this mRNA technology, uh, as gene therapy, when you say gene therapy, there, there are some people, lots of people who are not PhDs like you. Um, what does that mean when you describe it as gene therapy? I'm sorry, um, can you repeat the question? What does that mean what? Yeah, what does it mean when you describe these, these purported vaccinations as gene therapy? So there's many people that are trying to debunk this online, but it absolutely is a form of gene therapy. So what gene therapy is, is imagine that you were born with a gene that was mutated. And an example would be something like cystic fibrosis, where it causes you a, a disease, an illness, because your gene is mutated and it's not making the right protein. It's making a defective protein. So what they thought that they would do first is they would actually try to get the good gene in but the problem was if they got it in, it might get into your DNA in the wrong spot and cause a mutation that could cause problems or cancer. And they're like, okay, that's not a good idea. So they thought, what if instead of messing, not, let's not mess with the DNA at all. Let's just put RNA in there. And, um, you know, one of the people speaking out, Robert Malone, is somebody who pioneered this technology. Let's just put this RNA in that makes the protein, and then we'll leave the DNA untouched. There's, you know, you're not going to have mutations. Mm -hmm. And so what they did is they put the RNA to make the right gene product that can correct the deficiency. 
The problem is they could never get enough of it in and have it made long enough to really have a therapeutic effect. They're still working on it. They're still working at different things. And so this is that same technology. But what they're using, instead of using, like, the good gene that, you know, you didn't have, they're actually using the spike protein. They're putting in the mRNA that makes the spike protein. The spike protein is actually what is responsible for the toxic effects of SARS-CoV-2. So most of the deleterious effects of the viral infection are actually from the spike protein, and we're injecting mRNA into people, and in, in, in the case of Johnson & Johnson DNA, that's making the spike protein and, and, deliver, you know, and, and it's going all over the body. It, it's, it's mind-boggling. This this is this is <laughs> this this is mind boggling. This is mind boggling. And and yet we have this thing happening. And I, I alluded to this earlier in the program, but we have the the, the Biden administration now uh descri- describing executive action mandating all employers, private employers that have more than one hundred employees to require their staff to receive these vaccine injections or face a fine of $14,000 per instance that will require the employees to either take the vaccine injections or for those who are not vaccinated to be tested weekly. Now, here's the question. If, just as you've described, and we all know this to be true because even the CDC and others are recognizing this now, if the, the goal is to stop the spread of COVID-19, if that is the goal, but we know those who are vaccinated can still be infected by the virus and they still can transmit it, why would it only be those who are unvaccinated who would be subject to frequent testing? Does that make sense? Well, the reason is because I don't know if you've heard in the news, I don't actually watch the news anymore because it's just so much misinformation, but... um, I'm hearing in the news that they're saying that most of the people who are sick in the hospital with COVID or who are testing positive um, are unvaccinated. Well, that's because they're not testing the vaccinated. I mean, it's just silly. It's, you know, I, I know oh people who've actually gone to the hospital with COVID and they didn't test them for quite some time because they've had like a directive not to test people who've been vaccinated. This is insanity so that their records can show that most of the people who have it are are, are unvaccinated. I mean, it, it's circular reasoning. So, oh But goodness. I think there's um, something really important to, to tell people, and that is that there's no version that you can go out to your drugstore, your doctor, and get that has any liability protection. So if you're None. injured or killed by this vaccine, and there are over 13,000 um, reported injuries The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.